Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. This is Forum. I'm Katie Orr. Once known as the land of orphans, South Korea has placed nearly 200,000 children in foreign adoptions since the 1950s. Until 1995, it was the world leader in sending children for adoption in the United States. Frustrated by incomplete and sometimes falsified records, many of those adoptees are now turning to DNA technology to find their birth families, a process that is often fraught with challenges. We talk about the legacy of Korea's adoption policies and speak with some adoptees about their efforts to connect with their families. That's next on Forum, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Katie Orr. Since the 1950s, nearly 200,000 Korean children have been placed in foreign adoptions, and the number of children put up for adoption was once so extensive, the country was accused of exporting babies. In an attempt to rectify this troubled history, in 2020, the South Korean government announced a plan to collect DNA from Korean adoptees living abroad so they could find their biological family. This hour, we'll talk about the complicated legacy of South Korea's adoption system and discuss how adoptees are using DNA to find birth families. Joining us are Bella Siegel Dalton, co-founder of 325 Camera, a nonprofit organization focused on helping Korean adoptees find family members using DNA. Alina Kim is Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, Irvine, and author of Adopted Territory, Transnational Korean Adoptees and the Politics of Belonging. And Glenn Morey, filmmaker and co-director of Side by Side and Given Away, two documentaries about Korean adoptees' searches for their biological families. Thank you all so much for joining me. And um, Alina Kim, I'd like to start with you, just to give us some background. You know, how did Korea become the country that placed more kids up for adoption than any other in the world? Thank you so much for having me. Um, Well, I can give you the long version or the short version. Uh, The succinct version would be um, that adoptions from South Korea began in the aftermath of the Korean War. There were um, an estimated 100,000 so-called mixed-race children who were born to Korean women and fathered by UN or U.S. soldiers. 
and that was considered to be a kind of um, crisis by the South Korean government, uh, which was invested in idea of ethnic purity within the Cold War context. Um, and so the children were seen as kind of um, symbols of U.S. occupation and colonialism. Uh, and at the same time, there were many uh, uh, would-be parents in the U.S. who were um, kind of locked out of the stream of adoption within the U.S. domestic adoption scene. And so Korea became a kind of source country for American parents. And this shifted in the late 60s and really up to the present when the, uh, again, the so-called mixed race children, you know, uh, ceased to be the main source of adoptable children from Korea. And instead you had uh, children who were born to a Korean mother and a Korean father who were usually victims of poverty or divorce and um, ended up being adopted really in huge numbers. Um, the peak was in uh, the mid-1980s when almost 9,000 children were sent in one year. And since that time, the numbers have decreased. Uh, so even today, people may not realize that South Korea continues to send children to foreign countries for adoption. Uh, but you know those numbers have declined to about 300 per year in the last decade or so. It seems like something the country's really struggled with throughout its history of this adoption. If I'm if I'm understanding it right, there were times when, you know, they said we're not going to do any more of these adoptions. We're going to push domestic adoptions and then backing off from that. So, you know, where did things stand right now? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's been a kind of political issue and a, and a source of national shame in South Korea for, especially since the 1988 Olympic Games, which took place in Seoul. Uh, and that was really the first time that the international media took notice of the large numbers of children coming and framed it less as a kind of happy story of family formation for American parents and more a question of what is this rising economic uh, you know, what, what is this country whose, you know, sort of economic fortunes are on the rise doing sending so many children to foreign countries? Um, so, you know, it, the across the decades, uh, what you've seen is the South Korean government trying to impose uh, some regulations after, you know, the 1980s was really a period in which there are very few regulations. So, um, by the, uh, you know, certainly after the Olympic Games, you know, the question was, well, what can we do to stem this flow? And the obvious answer is to increase uh, social welfare spending to support families who may not be able to support their children. But particularly by the 1980s, what you had was um, young uh, single mothers uh, sending children for adoption. And uh, that was tied to, you know, social stigmas around uh, having children outside of marriage. Um, so, you know, today still, you, you know, that is the main source of children uh, who end up being adopted outside of South Korea and also within South Korea. But, you know, one thing you have to look at is government efforts have typically focused on increasing domestic adoption. Uh, rather than uh, providing more um, resources and welfare support for single mothers. And I just, just before uh, signing on here, I pulled up some of the recent statistics and South Korea is known globally as a kind of economic powerhouse, but um, it is 
ranks very low among OECD nations in terms of the percentage of GDP spent on social uh, services. So it currently is 12.2% of GDP, which is well below the OECD average of 20%. Uh, and just as a comparison, the U.S. is around 18.7. Um, so, and South Korea is also, has also been in the news recently for um, its, you know, the, the very wide pay gap that again among OECD nations is among the worst in the world. So this is where you see some of the social issues that lie behind the problem of um, adoption. Uh, Glenn Mori, I want to bring you into this conversation. Um, as we mentioned, you're a filmmaker. You've made the documentaries Given Away and Side by Side. And you are also an adoptee from Korea. You grew up uh, in Denver. Um, what are you hearing uh, from Elena Kim that resonates with you? Can you relate to what she is sharing with us? Well, I certainly can relate to being part of a very large community of intercountry adoptees out of South Korea. Uh, and the interesting thing about this group of people, this universe of adoptees, is that most of us at this point are, are adults. Uh, so we're not the children that people think about when they think about adoption. We are adults, many of us in our 60s and some of us even in our 70s. I'm 61. Uh, I was I was adopted in 1960, born in 1960, and adopted uh, uh, to the U.S. then. And I I, I really want to share a clip from your documentary, Given Away. Um, it's from a man uh, you called David because it just really it just struck you how this man is an older gentleman too, and you can just still feel the pain that he felt um, when he was essentially being given up for adoption. Let's listen to that. I guess really the moment that I kind of knew something was going to happen was the time my grandmother took me to the train station with my brother. There was a stranger there. She handed us off to him. You know, it's interesting because it was just my grandmother. It wasn't my father. It wasn't my mother. And uh, we went off on the train with the stranger and, you know, at the time, I wouldn't say, I said, okay, I'm being given away. You know, I'm somehow, my grandmother's, you know, giving me away to the, the stranger and I'm going somewhere. Of course, I was scared. We were both crying. One of the last things that my grandmother said was, hey, you know, when you grow up, come visit me. That is, is very, very distinct. And uh, it, it, it makes me emotional to, to talk about it. Yeah, Glenn Mori, I mean, that just gets to this this common story. It seems that, um, you know, we don't it, – it's not like these babies were just, you know, babies and for whatever reason were given to an orphanage. Some of these children were old enough to know what was happening. So tell us a little bit about that and tell us a little bit about um, this this documentary uh, given away that you created and why you were – um, compelled to do it in the first place? Well, the idea of the side-by-side -side project was to capture not just a single story or a few stories, but a really broad representation of the Korean adoptees who were living in countries all over the world, adopted over the course of 60 plus years. And so we filmed the stories of 100 men and women ages 18 to 70, all of whom were 
orphans or social orphans and institutionalized in Korea. Um, all in all, we filmed 100 stories in seven countries, 16 cities, and, and six languages. Um, but, you know, the most, I think for me, the most surprising thing that I learned was that, uh, was that with nearly everyone that I talked to, um, I found a lot of pain associated with their adoption experiences. Uh, and it didn't matter what the nature of their adoption experience had been, if they'd been raised in a great family or they'd had traumatic experiences in their adoptive home, it didn't matter. Uh, I found a surprising amount of pain associated with everyone's adoption experiences. And, and, uh, and it didn't even matter if they were struggling with life challenges in, in the current in their current situation. You know, it didn't matter if they had beautiful families and wonderful lives. Uh, uh, the, the truth is, is that the painful memories, the painful feelings that they associate with their adoption in, in some very significant ways uh, results in, in the kind of pain that simply doesn't go away. And, uh, you know, I think that, uh, uh, that can be attributed to the fact that our lives, uh, contrary to, to the way most people think about adoption, our lives as adoptees do not begin with our adoption. They begin uh, when we're born and they are impacted by the oftentimes very, very negative and, uh, and even traumatic to learn uh, reasons for our adoption in the first place. I want to invite our listeners to call in. Are you a Korean adoptee searching for family or do you have experience with international adoption? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We're talking about South Korea's legacy of transnational adoption. We'll be back right after this break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Katie Orr, and we're talking this morning about South Korea's legacy of transnational adoptions and efforts by adoptees to find their families. I want to bring Bella Siegel Dalton into the conversation now. She's co-founder of an organization called 325 Camera, which is aiming to help adoptees find their birth families through the use of DNA. Bella, thank you so much for speaking with us. Um, tell me a little bit about your organization and how it got started. Thank you, first of all, for um, this one wonderful topic that means so much to all of us. Um, we actually started 
in 2015 in October, um, there was an event held in Berkeley, California um, at UC Berkeley by Me in Korea, which is an organization that was doing birth surges, still doing birth surges and motherland tours. And they realized the importance of um, touching on the subject of mixed, mixed race Korean adoptees. And so they put this event together and um, several of us were visiting, a meeting in the Shattuck Hotel at room 325. And I had just recently found my father's family through DNA. And in talking with the other ladies, um, kind of determined where their searches were and they just didn't know what to do with their DNA. And upon looking at them, you know, I was able to say, you know, you're really close. You, you could actually find out who your paternal family is. And that was when, you know, that light bulb went off and we had the aha moment. If we could do the same thing with Korean families and actually get their DNA in the database, then we could help Korean adoptees who either have missing records, no records or incorrect or falsified records, or those that have been stolen or relinquished without parental permission, find their correct families. And that was the, the turning point for us. Now, what did you feel like when last year the South Korean government said that it would start assisting in these DNA matches and essentially adoptees would be able to submit their DNA to the consulate? And if I'm correct, this is the first time they were able to do it internationally, right? They didn't have to go to Korea to do that. I mean, so how, how big of a game changer was that? It's a game changer in the fact that adoptees no longer have to travel to Korea and jump through hoops in order to get their DNA in the database. Um, prior to 2020, they had to travel to Korea, as I said, but they also had to prove that they were a missing child and not relinquished for adoption. If you were relinquished for adoption, you could not be in the database. And that changed in 2020. The only problem is, is that every parent cannot get in that database. See, only the adoptees can go to the consulate and get in the database. But parents that no longer live in Korea cannot get in the database. Also, some people don't know, you know, about the DNA. So that's why it's still important to get in the commercial databases. It's the, the consulate database is extremely immensely important. Your parents may be in that database, but it's also important to get in all the other ones because your parents may not have ever DNA tested, but you may have a cousin who is now living in the States with their family and they may DNA test and they may be able to connect you with your family. Right, because one of the things I uh, thought when I read about this Korean government effort is that it's uh, one-to-one. You can only, you know, find your your parents. And a lot of these adoptees, as we heard from Glenn, are in their 60s, so the parents, you know, in their 80s. I mean, do you think in future years the government will have to expand who they offer this uh, DNA matching to in terms of, like, cousins or aunts, things like that? 
they would have to completely change. Uh, they're not using autosomal DNA, which is what the DNA companies are using. The commercial sites use autosomal DNA. Um, in layman's terms, it just means DNA you get from mom or dad, whereas the DNA process used by Korea is either mom or dad, and it is only correct if it's a direct paternal or maternal match, so mom and dad, or a full sibling. They, we have seen mistakes made with half-siblings. So it's very, you know, we, we tell people, go ahead and still get a commercial DNA test. You only have to buy two. You only have to buy Ancestry. You only have to buy 23andMe. You can get in the other ones with one of those kits already. So it's, you don't actually have to buy five kits. I want to remind our listeners that we are speaking about transnational adoptions uh, from South Korea and the country's legacy with those adoptions. Um, Give us a call if you're a Korean adoptee searching for family or do you have experience with an international adoption as a parent or a child. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Now, Bella, you actually have found some of your family, your birth family through DNA. Is that right? Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, I actually found my father's side of the family in 2015. Um, And what I did was once I isolated who I thought he was, Um, I asked one of his other children, which would be a half sibling, if they would DNA test. And then once I got the results, I knew for certain that I knew my father's side of the family. When I talked to that side of the family, they were actually able to tell me some things about my mother. And I was shocked because I was told that my dad knew nothing about me. And that wasn't the case. And then... um, let's see, what year are we in? 2021. So in 2019, in December, I got a DNA match on Ancestry to a half sibling on my mother's side with a different father, American father. So we're both mixed race Korean adoptees. And then March of last year, so we're just past the one year anniversary, I got another match on Ancestry to a nephew And when I contacted him, he said, hey, my grandma said that she put up two mixed race girls for adoption. Those would be my aunties. Are you one of them? So I found Mm -hmm. him and he his mother is my half sister on my mother's side. And she happens to be full Korean. And then you learned that your mother and sister had actually your half sister had actually moved to the U.S. at some point, right? Yes, in the 70s, in the early 70s, shortly at like within five years of me uh, arriving here in 1966. Glenn, you're an adoptee too. Tell us a little bit about your story. Have you had any luck in, in meeting your birth family? So I have not had any luck with that. I, uh, I was abandoned um, according to my records on the streets of Seoul, 
uh, when I was about two weeks old and I was taken to City Hall to be processed. And then from there, I was taken to an orphanage, a private orphanage run by the Holt organization. And, and six months later, I was adopted to the U.S. And, uh, you know, I think that I'm like many uh, adoptees because, you know, for every adoptee who reunites with birth parents or biological family, there are countless other adoptees who search but who have not had or maybe never will find biological family. Some search for years. Um, and others like me uh, hit a dead end really quickly, finding no information at all, uh, not even a name. And the disappointment that comes with that is, is profound. It's, it's deep and lasting. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, when it comes to adoptees searching, most adoptees make an attempt to search. Uh, they, they uh, have requested records while in the U.S., or they've gone to Korea to visit their orphanage or their agency. They've reviewed their records, uh, if some exist. Uh, some have gone through media. Some have gone through newspaper articles and, and television news and reality TV shows um, where they communicate whatever little information they have, uh, like when and where they were abandoned or relinquished. Um, and then, of course, some have pursued inquiries through the Korean police or even private detectives. Uh, the DNA testing that began in somewhere around 2013, I think, is really, really is uh, changing uh, the chances of success for Korean adoptees who have little or no information in their records. But, but unfortunately, I think it's changed to, to this point, mainly for mixed race adoptees, which is wonderful, obviously, for mixed race adoptees, but, but they have a, a better chance of connecting or being matched because, because there's so much DNA testing participation in Western countries. Uh, in Korea, where, where in all likelihood my biological family is entirely, um, uh, Koreans don't trust DNA testing and they're very protective of their family secrets. Uh, and in the West, we know that DNA testing often reveals those secrets. And so our chances for a match are considerably less. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, I've only talked to in my hundreds of conversations with adoptees around the world, uh, just a handful of, of adoptees who have made connections with uh, biological family uh, that, that are Korean biological family. I want to take a call now. Um, Paige in Oakland, go ahead. Hi, um, thanks for having this discussion. Um, I am a daughter of somebody who was adopted from Korea, and I don't think she's ever really searched for her family, but I was just wondering, I mean, I've taken a 23andMe test, um, but I'm wondering if there are any other things I can do to initiate finding any biological family or if it has to go through her. Bella, uh, can you speak to that? Absolutely. Um, you DNA testing is great. If she could DNA test, it would be better because she's closer to the source. But um, 
if she can't or doesn't want to or is, is unable to at this time, you could certainly do it. I would recommend that you also test at Ancestry. They're going to have some great sales around Mother's Day and Father's Day. So that would be a great time to get one of the kits. And then you can transfer your 23andMe or your Ancestry to MyHeritage and to FTDNA, and you can join the 325 camera project. And I want to interject something because um, there are over 300 Korean families that live in Korea that are in the FTDNA database that are waiting to be matched to their children. So yes, DNA test. Thank you, Paige. Um, I want to read a comment now from Peggy. She says, I write as the parent of a daughter whom I adopted in China in 1994. When she was quite young, I had the opportunity to attend a Korean adoptees conference and develop friendships with some adult Korean adoptees. These relationships have been hugely helpful to me as an adoptive parent. I'm sure I made plenty of mistakes as a parent, but at least I could hear their stories and try not to make the mistakes that happened to them. Um, She says, I do think adoptive parents owe it to their children to learn from adult adoptees, particularly in the case of transracial adoptions of any kind. Glenn, this kind of gets to the point um, from another interview in your documentary, Given Away, that I would like to get to. It's just the reality of growing up, um, you know, primarily for many of these adoptees in like a white neighborhood, being a Korean child. Um, Before you respond to that, let's hear from Charles, who describes his experience. My twin brother and I were adopted to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Our adoptive father was Norwegian-American and our adoptive mother was German-American. Our mother's family, extended family, her relations, mostly all lived in the Milwaukee area. So we were surrounded by German-American relatives. The area that we grew up in was 99.9% white. Of course, this was in the 1960s and early 1970s. There was virtually no consciousness around race. The way I like to describe it is that basically I grew up uh, feeling like a Martian who had arrived from outer space in a spaceship. And years later, uh, when I met other adoptees, it was like uh, happening upon a convention of Martians and spaceships. I mean, Glenn, that is just so powerful. That just really has stayed with me. I mean, how common is that experience in from what you have heard? Well, from from our filming, I think it's a very common experience. Um, I think that a feeling of alienation or isolation, a, a feeling of disconnection, is certainly very common amongst adoptees. Um, even adoptees who are well-connected through family, adoptive family, and and their community. But, you know, uh, when it comes to our self-identity, it's it's so often deeply rooted in family stories. You know, I, I have a family and, you know, my adoptive family, but I've never felt part of my family stories. Uh, you know, those generations going back to the early American colonies with war heroes and preachers and farmers and crazy uncles and, and you know, certain physical features from my mother's side versus my father's side. But those stories just, they don't explain how I came to exist in the world. 
they're largely irrelevant to my own life experiences as a Korean child growing up in white suburbia as an Asian American man. And so my face in the mirror bears no resemblance to anyone I know. I do not have anyone else's eyes or smile. I do not know the stories of my biological parents or how I came to be in the world looking like them. So for many of us, that is why we search. It's to fill in this not only informational black hole, but this black hole of identity that, 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 is, that we need to make sense out of our lives. Alina, I want to bring you in um, real quickly. Tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, the effect of these transnational adoptions. How common are they? And, you know, do we see it from other countries besides South Korea in, in the numbers that we have seen? Uh, well, I have to say, yes, definitely. There there has been um, transnational adoptions from other nations. Uh, but Korea really holds a particular place in the history of transnational adoption because it was, even though it wasn't the first nation to send children overseas, it, it certainly has sent the most number of children and it has had the longest program in the world. Uh, so there were other countries uh, shortly after World War II, which... Uh, sent war orphans and other needy children to other countries. Uh, but those programs, um, you know, were terminated once the uh, initial emergency had passed. But Korea um, sort of, uh, you know, continued and uh, also overlapped with other nations which saw Korea's program as highly successful. So this is where you saw um, the expansion of this into Latin America and other countries across Asia. We're talking about adoptees from South Korea and that country's legacy of transnational adoptions. Please give us a call if you have an experience you'd like to share. 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at kqed.forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Good morning. You're listening to Forum on KQED, and we're talking about adoptees from South Korea and the country's legacy of transnational adoption. I want to go to some calls right now. Eva in St. Paul, go ahead. Good morning. Thank you to all the speakers um, for your continual narrative-changing, community-building, and centering of Korean adoptees. Um, I'm actually uh, registered with 325 Camera. Um, I've had the been fortunate to work with them recently. Um, I'm particularly, um, I just had a question actually in terms of the work that 325 Camera is doing in Korea, um, which is really quite revolutionary in encouraging Korean people um, and especially families who are searching or thinking of searching to um, to register uh, their, their DNA. I'm just wondering if you could talk more about um, um, that work and um, and how it's coming along. 
Bella, yes, is there are there more efforts to register more people in in South Korea with the DNA registry? Yes, there are. It's it's actually our number one mission is to get as many Korean nationals in the DNA database, whether they are living in Korea or overseas or abroad, and to get them into the project. So um, we try to have events as, of course, funds allow, where we can, you know, get media attention that we're in the area and that we're providing free DNA kits through the uh, Thomas and Winsook Foundation um, to distribute in these areas. So our last um, push was in Daegao, uh, where we tested a few families and we did an online chat with them and, you know, just got the word out. And we'd like to do it, you know, of course, in Busan and Incheon and Bupyeong and Paju, uh, Wijambu, you know, all the areas of throughout Korea um, to get as many people. And yes, there are people that are hesitant, but there are also people that are just yearning to find out what happened to their family members and they, they do want resolution. They just don't know. Even in the US, you know, my father was a US citizen. He had no idea about DNA or science or how to locate the child that was left behind or the woman that was left behind. So DNA is definitely gonna make a difference. And it's just a matter of getting those kits in the right hands. They're there, they're available. Our team is, you know, always ready to mail them wherever they need to be mailed and get them back to the US. We have a sponsor that pays for postage back to the US. So, you know, it's just um, it's just going to take a little bit of time um, to get the word out and, and to, you know, plug away at it. I'd like to go to uh, Christine uh, from Connecticut for her story. Hi, I'm Christine. Hi, go ahead. Uh, in 1972, I was adopted to a loving family in Connecticut and uh I always wanted to find out my real family. Uh, in 2018, I found out about uh, 325 camera or um, FTDNA DNA testing could increase my chances of finding my bio family. Uh, so I did their test. Uh, then 2019, a Korean adoptee in Belgium had medical issues, so she did a DNA test. And a month later, I got an email uh, from this person telling me that she's adopted and she's from Korea and DNA testing discovered that she was my full younger sister that I never knew I had. I mean, those kinds of stories, I think, are why we hear a lot of people keep looking. You know, they even if even if they know they're getting older and their families are getting older. I want to bring in someone who has a slightly different perspective just because she is from a younger generation. Alyssa Jung Perry, she is a producer uh, with NPR's podcast Code Switch. She was adopted uh, from South Korea and actually grew up in Modesto. Alyssa, thanks for joining us. Um, tell me a little bit about about your story and how you wound up in Modesto. Hi, thanks for having me. I actually used to work at KQED. Um, Welcome. Yeah, so um, 
You know, I was in the 80s and 85, which was one of the peak years of children going, leaving Korea to go to the United States or other westernized countries. I think um, I was born, born in 85 and I left three months later. So I was only three months old. Um, my parents were living in Oregon at the time and Portland area, one of the biggest uh, adoption agencies, Holt, was having, um, you know, they were, they heard about, I'm sorry, let me gather my thoughts. They heard about like a lot of people adopting babies in Oregon and Holt was there. So my mom couldn't have any more kids at the time. And so they had put in to adopt me because a lot of their friends had been adopting Korean babies. So, you know, my parents are originally from California. So eventually we moved down back to California and landed in Modesto, which if you know, is a pretty kind of sleepy suburban town about 90 miles outside the Bay. It's heavily Latino and white and it's very conservative. So I didn't really know any Koreans or very many adoptees growing up. You've done um, a lot of reporting on this uh, yourself. And it seems that many of the people you've spoken to have actually had, you know, pretty hard lives as a result of this, of their adoptions, you know, trauma that they're still dealing with today. Yeah, I've had uh, people, you know, I actually lived in Korea uh, for four years. So I met a whole bunch of adoptees that were living there. And we all had very nuanced stories. You know, some people went to very nice (laughs) upper middle class families or very rich families. Um, some ended up in families where there were, you know, 13 kids that the parents have had, you know, some of them were adopted. And so you're just kind of a number in that household. Some people that I followed were sent to abusive homes at an older, you know, they're adopted older and then their parents didn't want them anymore. So they sent them back into foster care or into foster care. So, you know, there's some adoptees that have been dumped around, you know, the foster care system here in the U.S. So, you know, that's added trauma of um, neglect and um, abandonment. And uh, Alyssa, correct me if I'm wrong, you have actually mentioned that you cannot talk about this adoption, transnational adoption, South Korean adoption, without talking about imperialism. Tell me a little bit more about that. What what do you how did you come to that conclusion? I think it was my time, and that's a good question. I think it was during my time in Korea when I lived there for four years and sort of learned about the international adoption trade. Like I had never learned anything about that growing up here in the states, even in my twenties. And when I got to Korea, there's such uh, influence of the United States military there, right? there's an army base in the middle of Seoul. Like I lived, my apartment was like bordering that army base. And you start to realize how much influence that the U.S. had in this country. And you, I learned, you know, about the camp towns after the Korean War and there were mixed race children. And, you know, the efforts, like Elena Ken said, to keep the country pure. So kids were being sent across. There were people having, you know, they Holt came in, you know, um, posing as like, like this Christian thing, we'll give these kids a great family. And so you sort of see this 
kind of correlation, right? You just see many times the U.S. coming in with the militarization and settling in and kind of disrupting. Well, and Glenn Mori, I want to get your take on this because you have said you actually see Korean adoptions as a form of human human trafficking, which is a pretty powerful statement. I mean, why why do you feel that way? Yeah, I I actually don't know, don't know that I've said that. Um, sorry, but uh, uh, what I have said is that I think that the fact that orphanages and adoption uh, uh, exists in the general area of commerce makes it very, very difficult, I think, to to create and to hold to ethical lines uh, of operation. And and I think that even in the stories that we heard, uh, the 100 stories that we filmed, uh, we heard stories of how adoptive families came into contact with with children uh, and infants uh, and arranged those adoptions that certainly did not sound like they comported with the way that things are supposed to be done, uh, either on a legal point of view or or on an ethical point of view. So, um, yes, I think it's hard to 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 not cross that line when essentially you're dealing in an area of with the same methods of all commerce, frankly, which is supply and demand. And I want to go to a caller, Nick in Oakland. Go ahead. Hi. I had a very close or have a very close friend who had a remarkably painful experience. She's full Korean, was left at an orphanage or someplace in Korea where she got into the orphanage system. And uh, she went through three different service member families, was returned twice. The third family traveled to San Diego, where she grew up. At all times, she was being raised on the ba- the military bases in Korea. And then um, in San Diego, she went to a regular high school. Her last family that adopted her um, was was Catholic. And it was kind of a Cinderella story where she was the unfavored daughter. They had two Korean female adoptees. They, out of meanness, wanting to get rid of her, flew her back and said, let's go to Korea. And then when they got to the airport, they got on a flight and returned home and left her stranded at the airport in Korea. She had no idea how to speak Korean at that point in time. She didn't know what to do. They started swearing at her at the airport, the Koreans, because she couldn't talk Korean. She finally ended up at a Catholic um, orphanage um, where they allowed her to go to school and then got her into a um, scholarship program uh, to an English-speaking high school. And finally, a family in Walnut Creek area, Concord, um, offered to adopt her, and she's been living in that area ever since. And this all started during the Korean War, or based on uh, when the Korean War was happening. So I just thought it was an amazing story, um, and uh, I'm certainly going to share with her um, what I'm hearing today. I tried to call her, Great. but uh, I'll, I'll leave it thank at that. You. 
Thank you so much uh, for your call. Um, Colleen writes, uh, my husband and I adopted a son from South Korea in the early 2000s. I just wanted to say thank you for the show and spreading the information about the DNA registry. I've just started the conversations with my son in the process to learn how to find his birth family. In the last three days, I've learned that the local adoption agency and the international adoption agency that we worked with have closed. This news made me realize how important the DNA testing option is for adoptees. Um, And this kind of brings up the subject of reunification. And Glenn, I want to play another clip uh, from your your documentary, Given Away. And this is uh, Dave. And he was speaking about his experience reuniting with his biological father. They were able to arrange a visit with my biological father. And so we ended up uh, meeting at a restaurant with a translator, with my grandmother there. I told her, I remember what she said, and that was the grandmother that led me to the train. I told her, I'm back. I mean, I'm, I'm here. Everything is, is fine. Everything worked out. You know, from talking to, I guess, the siblings, my half-brother and sister on my father's side, you know, he never forgot about us. He actually tried to come back and get us a month later. You know, he, he changed his mind. My siblings would say, yeah, every time he gets drunk, he would say your names and he would yell out for you guys. And that's how we knew that you guys existed. You know, I have a couple of kids and I could just imagine how difficult that would have been. But, you know, at the end of the day, I appreciate what he did. Glenn, I think that cut just gets to such, you know, the the nuances and the layers of these situations where, you know, the children are given away and perhaps they did have good lives, you know, are having great lives, but it doesn't take away the the pain and, you know, where they came from. I think that's really true. And I think that uh, that is one of the real overlooked parts of of the public narrative and the social narrative on intercountry adoption, but it also goes both ways. Um, <clears throat> right now, I'm in I'm in touch with a woman in South Korea who is looking for her sister. Uh, she was her sister was born in 1960, uh, was taken to an orphanage in 1966 because the family was very poor and simply couldn't support all of these children, and that that sister was adopted out. And now this woman in 2021 is desperately trying to find her. And what had not occurred to her was the idea of DNA testing. And so we really have to make more of this method, not just for adoptees, but for but for biological family of adoptees who are very, very uh, sincerely and very uh, with with tremendous effort are trying to find uh, their siblings and children. Uh, Alyssa, what have you heard from the people you've spoken to about their attempt, their their uh, successful, you know, uh, reunifications and that they found people from their birth families? What were those experiences like? Yeah, I mean, I got to experience by osmosis a lot of these um, reunifications while living in Seoul. And, you know, some were really sad. You know, one friend 
told me that the adoption agency got them in touch with an aunt, um, but not the mother. And so she met the aunt and the aunt said, you know, I was the one who took you to the adoption agency and I signed off as your mother. Your mother is living with a whole new family right now. Please leave her alone. You know, there's those kind of stories. There's some stories where um, a couple of people I knew were reunited with their parents and their parents were still together. And the names were just on the adoption papers with the agency and um, these numbers, they're sort of like social security numbers. So it was very easy actually, in fact, to find the family um, on these sort of paper, on these kind of paperwork. But, you know, when you go back to a family that's still intact and there's kids, they have more kids after you were adopted out, there's a lot of questions, right? And hurt and it's, it just opens up a whole nother can of worms. It's not just like, okay, you found your family, you know where you're from, you know, there's other feelings coming through with that. If you want to put up, uh, if you would like more information on how you can find information, perhaps on a birth family in, in South Korea, you can email familysearch at 325camera.org. That's K A. M-R-A dot org. Uh, we've been talking about adoptees from South Korea and that country's legacy of transnational adoptions with UC Irvine professor Alina Kim, Glenn Morey, who is a filmmaker of uh, side, the Side by Side Project. Bella Siegel Dalton is co-founder of 325 Camera. And Alyssa Jong-Perry, she's a producer with NPR's Code Switch podcast. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum with Mina Kim. I'm Katie Orr. Bye-bye. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.